Beauty is the topic, and um, I do want to think through the validity of Dostoevsky's statement that beauty will save the world. Before we do that, let's just pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Our Father, we love you, and we're so grateful for your goodness to us. Thank you for the grace that we experience each and every day. Thank you for the grace that we experience simply in coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and the gift that it is to enjoy fellowship with one another. Father, we're grateful for the grace that we receive by way of the cross. We are grateful that we stand here this morning cleansed of our sin, washed clean by the blood of Christ. That we stand before you this morning fearing no condemnation, but knowing only your perfect love, knowing that We have a relationship with you. And there is no longer any sin against our name. And Father, we acknowledge that the gospel comes with responsibilities, that our salvation demands certain things of us. And one of those things is simply to think, to consider to be responsible with our thoughts and our understanding of the world around us. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us this morning to think through the issue of beauty, to understand it as you understand it. Father, lead me in my words and lead us in our understanding that you would be glorified as a result, that in some way you would claim more fame from us as a result of this time together this morning. We desperately need you, and so we seek your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Will beauty save the world? Before we can even come close to answering that question, we first need to define our terms. We need to try and define what beauty is and what it is not. Now, in seeking to define beauty, we can begin with a word study, and it might surprise you to find out that It doesn't occur as often as you might think in the scriptures. There are several words in the Old Testament that can be translated as beauty, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. It doesn't occur all that much in the New Testament. However, there is a verb in the New Testament that occurs with some degree of regularity that provides for us an entry point into an understanding of beauty. And that verb is typically translated as to adorn. To adorn 
sometimes to set in order, or literally to make beautiful. The verb in Greek is cosmeo, cosmeo. And when I say that, it might be that your mind goes in one of two directions. Some of you, when I say cosmeo, will think of cosmetics. And that's entirely appropriate. That's a good connection. We get our word cosmetics from the Greek verb cosmeo to make beautiful. That's what makeup cosmetics is trying to do. For others of you, when I say cosmeo, you may think of cosmos. And that also is a valid connection. That's a legitimate relationship. The Greek verb cosmeo, to adorn, to make beautiful, is closely related to the word cosmos. And in fact, that second relationship proves to be very important for our understanding of beauty. As you trace that verb through ancient writings, as you trace the understanding of beauty through ancient writings, what you see is that in civilization, to make beautiful was to put in order in such a way that the thing that you've arranged reflects a greater reality. The classical and the Christian understanding of beauty was to recognize a particular manifestation of a broader universal order. So it used to be that to call something beautiful was to some degree to acknowledge that it represented a broader universal order. When I look at this mountain and I declare it to be beautiful, what I'm saying in part is that that mountain reflects or imitates a broader universal order. There is a snapshot in this mountain of the order of the cosmos. When I look at an ocean and I declare it to be beautiful, what I'm saying is that the ocean in some way depicts the order that I see on a much bigger scale, namely in the cosmos. When I look at a child's face and I say this face is beautiful, I'm saying there's something in that face that represents the divinely ordained order of the cosmos. Now, from there, certain implications flow out of our understanding of beauty. The first thing to say is that beauty, truly understood, possesses a projecting value possesses a projecting quality. And what I mean by that is to say something is beautiful, truly understood, is to say that that thing, the thing that possesses the beauty, pushes my thoughts beyond itself. If it is truly beautiful, then as I take it in, invariably the meditations of my heart will be pushed beyond a consideration of the thing itself. So again, to look at an ocean, to look at a sunset, and to declare it to be beautiful is to say, rightly considered, this ocean, this sunset, is pushing my thoughts beyond a mere consideration of the ocean, of the sunset. From a Christian perspective, I would say it pushes my thoughts towards greater manifestations of the handiwork of God and actually, ultimately, towards God himself. 
That's what beauty does. It has this projecting quality to it, pushing us to consider things beyond the object itself. Secondly, we should say that beauty is concerned with both form and content. Beauty is concerned with both form and content. If it possesses this quality that projects my thoughts beyond itself towards the divinely ordained cosmos, it is projecting my thoughts towards both the order, the form, and the content. So I'll just give you an example. If I was to give you a picture, and on that picture there was an eye, and then over here another eye, and then there's a, there's a nose here, and a, a mouth here, and there's an ear in the middle, and then you turn it over, and there's a second ear, it's highly unlikely that you would say, that is beautiful. Now, by contrast, if I keep the content the same, but I rearrange those things so that now I have an eye, an eye, and a mouth, and a nose, and two ears, now you might say, that is beautiful. The content hasn't changed, but the form has. And so beauty not only projects our thoughts beyond the consideration of the object itself, but it is concerned with both form and content. It projects our thoughts towards the divinely ordained form and content of the universe. And that relationship is going to become very important for us to consider. Thirdly, we might say this, beauty never stands isolated. Beauty is always inextricably connected to that which is also good and true. And maybe you've heard people talk about what is often referred to as the Christian transcendentals. The Christian transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, and the true. It was Plato that first spoke about these. He said, it seems to me the good, the beautiful, and the true are a unity. And then Augustine picked them up later and Christianized them, as it were. From a theological perspective, he said, that's right, and the unity is God. The good, the beautiful, and the true, they cannot be separated. It stands to reason, theologically, that if we affirm something to be beautiful, that is, in some way, it expresses the divinely ordained form and content of the universe as authored by God himself, then it must also be true. It's an expression of God's handiwork, and God is not in the business of lying. If we affirm something to be beautiful, then it must also be good meaning ethically pure, morally upright, because God is not in the business of sin. So the three go hand in hand. It was John Keats, the poet, who famously wrote, truth is beauty, beauty truth. To put it another way, you cannot have something that is beautiful, truly understood, and is not good, morally pure. If the thing is corrupt, then it cannot be beautiful, no matter how much we might enjoy it. You can't have something that's beautiful and is not also true. If the thing is a lie, if it's a facade, if it's deceptive, then it cannot be beautiful. This is why when Paul writes to Timothy, 
He says, tell the women to adorn themselves, cosmeto, to make themselves beautiful. How? Not with expensive clothing and pearls, but, he says, with modesty and self-control. Now notice, Paul is not there primarily issuing a dress code to the church. He's not. Primarily, what he's doing is he is instructing about the true nature of beauty. If the woman is to beautify herself, make herself beautiful in the truest sense, she's not to do it with clothes and jewelry, but she's to do it with ethical categories. Because these ethical categories go hand in hand with what beauty is, the good, the beautiful, and the true. And then Peter issues a similar command in 1 Peter chapter 3. So to summarize, beauty is a quality that imitates and projects the divinely ordained form and content of the cosmos and is inextricably connected to that which is true and good. Now, there's nothing new there. That has all been stated many times before, and it may seem fairly straightforward, but we need to be careful. We need to be careful because there are some pretenders out there. And now I'm moving on to consider what beauty is not. What beauty is not, and maybe the biggest misnomer that we need to clarify this morning is simply to say that beauty is not a synonym for pretty. Pretty is not a synonym for beauty. Prettiness speaks about that which is pleasing to the eye, that which is aesthetically enjoyable. It may bring about a fleeting pleasure, but that is not the same thing as beauty. And there is actually much confusion over these two categories today. Prettiness does not project towards the divinely ordained form and content of the universe. Prettiness is pleasing to the eye, but that which is pretty is not in and of itself going to push our thoughts beyond the consideration of the object towards the greater manifestation of God's handiwork. It's not what it does. Now, there is a significant implication that quickly falls out of that observation, and it is simply this. Prettiness is subjective. Beauty is not. So we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's not. That's not true. Beauty is not a subjective category. Beauty, truly understood, is locked in, predefined, by the divinely ordained form and content of the universe, that which God has written. Prettiness is not. It's entirely subjective. This is why I can go to any continent on the earth. I can be in Africa, I can be in Asia, I can be in Europe, I can be in America. If a child laughs, people will smile. It doesn't matter where I am, if a young child laughs, I see people around smile. Because that's beauty, and beauty is a universal language. It's objective. It's not up for definition. It's locked in. By contrast, I can go to every house on my street 
and get a different response to the question of what is it you find to be attractive in the opposite sex. Now we're talking about prettiness, and it's subjective. And note, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. We just have to understand the difference. We have to understand that prettiness is not beauty, and beauty is not prettiness. Often, the two will overlap. Often, that which we find to be pretty will at the same time be beautiful, though it doesn't have to be the case. And sometimes, actually, they run in completely opposite directions. Aristotle famously spoke about the fact that we can enjoy a painting which depicts a scene which is not pleasant. So think about um, a bird of prey, just by way of example, killing an animal. It's not that pleasant a scene to take in, and yet we can enjoy, appreciate, marvel at a painting of that because it's representing something of the divinely ordained form and order of the cosmos. It's not pretty, but it is beautiful. Another example, I was told of a a young pastor recently, I was told recently, the, the event happened many years ago, he was visiting the sick and the elderly in his church, and he was with an elderly lady in the hospital, and she had a degenerative disease, and she was in the last few weeks of her life. And she said to the young pastor, am I pretty? And he, he was just desperate to give comfort. I mean, he understood that she just wanted some affirmation, some comfort. And so he said, yes. And then after the fact, he was just plagued with guilt because he had lied to her. And he went and found an older pastor and he said, I, I lied to her. She, she wasn't pretty. And the older pastor said, you should have answered a different question. You should have said, you're beautiful. She may not be pretty, but she's beautiful. Because the image of God is in her. And there's something in all of us that represents the divinely ordained form and content of the universe. So the two may overlap, but oftentimes they run in opposite directions. A second observation about that which beauty is not, prettiness is not necessarily true, nor is it necessarily good. Whereas beauty is anchored to those qualities and cannot be separated from them, that which is pretty is not necessarily true, nor is it necessarily good. Two examples will demonstrate this. One from the Bible, God creates in Genesis chapter 1, he makes and it is good. It is good, it is good, it was very good, says Genesis chapter 1. What's interesting is that that word there in the Hebrew language can be translated as beautiful. And in fact, there are places in the Old Testament when it oftentimes is translated as beautiful. It's appropriate to say God made and he saw that it was beautiful. It was very beautiful. And that really helps our understanding of what was going on in the garden. Now, fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, 
And notice that which Eve sees was pleasing to the eyes. Now, notwithstanding any beauty that may have been inherent to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Eve saw it for its prettiness. She observed that which was pleasing to the eyes. And I don't think it's any accident that closely associated with that which was pleasing to the eyes is a lie. Did God really say? I don't think it's any accident that that which was pleasing to the eyes is closely associated with that which was not good, namely sin. You see how Genesis 3 takes those Christian transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, and the true, and flips them all on their head. Uh, Another example, a bit closer to home, the cosmetic industry. You see how cosmetics in and of itself is a misnomer because what cosmetics do is they make pretty, they don't make beautiful. So think of the the woman on the front of the magazine and who knows how many hours upon hours have been invested into making her look pretty. Not to mention now the hours and hours after the photo shoot to further edit, edit her and produce what it is that we see and we all know it's a lie. That's not what she looks like. Now, there is inherent beauty in her because she's made in the image of God, but in the image, we cannot affirm it to be beautiful. It's pretty, but it's not true. And we could even go on to consider the fact that it's not necessarily good in light of the amount of damage that it can cause down the line for young girls and women that view that. Now, at this point, I would make a a note of application, and, and maybe particularly to parents. It's not an overstatement to say that so many of our issues today are caused by a misunderstanding of that which is beautiful and that which is merely pretty. So many of our issues in society today are caused by our confusing those two categories, by our affirming that which is pretty to be beautiful when it in fact isn't, by our suggesting that that which is beautiful is merely pretty when it is so much more than that. We live in an image-based culture, an image-saturated culture. The common medium of communication today is not the written word. It used to be and was for hundreds of years. And every time I consider that, it just astounds me. The common medium of communication today is images. We primarily communicate through pictures today. Social media, movies, television, so on and so forth. That presents real issues. And one of the best things that you can do for your children is to help them to discern and to understand the difference between beauty and prettiness. Prettiness is not necessarily wrong, but it is not beauty. Now, all we've done so far is to define our terms. All we've done is to think through what beauty is and what it is not. I haven't yet thought through why it matters. What's the so what of all of this? 
Why should we give our thought and our consideration to the topic of beauty? Or why is it worth pursuing? There are a number of things we could say to this. First of all, beauty satisfies. Beauty satisfies. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, every human heart is drawn towards beauty. There is something inside all of us that yearns to take in that which is beautiful. And again, the fundamental doctrine in view here is the image of God. We are made as God's representatives. There is something of God's handiwork in us. And made in the image of God, we desire to take in yet more of his handiwork. We want our thoughts to be pushed beyond the object itself to a consideration of a greater manifestation of his work. There is something in us, even if we don't realize it or even if we try to suppress it, there is something in us that yearns to take in the higher things, to be driven towards a consideration of the cosmos, the divinely ordained form and content of the universe, and eventually towards God himself. The psalmist gives voice to this in Psalm 27 when he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord. One thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The one thing I want, he says, is to look at your beauty, to take it in. And when we take it in, we're satisfied. If you're doubting this, just consider for a minute the travel industry. Millions upon millions of dollars spent every year for people to go somewhere. Now, why is it that people are willing to spend so much money to travel to the tropical island, the mountain range, the beach? Why, why does the couple at the end of the street willingly empty their savings account in order to spend 10 days in Mauritius? Why do they spend all of their tax rebate to go to Cyprus for a week? The answer cannot be simply to have a break, to have a change in routine. I often say any change in routine brings about refreshment. It brings about the rest that people are continually seeking. If they were only seeking a change in routine, I guarantee I could find them an Airbnb on Roscoe Boulevard and they could save a whole lot of money. And that would be a change in routine. Whether they realize it or not, the reason they'll spend so much money to go to the tropical island is because they want beauty. They want beauty. And they know at some level that when they get it, they will be satisfied. This is why... Certain pieces of music, certain pieces of art, certain pieces of literature have stood the test of time. This is why the L.A. Bowl will still sell out when Mozart plays, when Beethoven plays. Those, music, those pieces of music have stood the test of time for a reason, because there is something in them that is truly beautiful. And people may not be able to put their finger on it, but intuitively they know it, and they know that upon hearing it, there will be a level of satisfaction. Beauty is actually a very enigmatic quality. If you think about it, as it projects our thoughts to something bigger, that makes it very enigmatic in its, in its very understanding or definition. If I said to you, 
why do you find that thing to be beautiful? It's a very difficult question to answer. The sunset was beautiful. Tell me why. Well, you might start to describe the sunset, and I'd say, no, 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 all you're doing now is describing it to me. Tell me why it was beautiful. And it's difficult to put our finger on, but the answer is because it is pushing our hearts towards a consideration of something beyond itself. The health industry is just another example, though somewhat ironic. Now billions of dollars being spent every year as people pursue beauty. And we know, simply from our definitions this morning, that they're making a mistake because they're actually pursuing prettiness with billions spent through various efforts of gaining health and vitality, people are actually pursuing prettiness, though they think they're pursuing beauty. And why are they willing to part with so much cash? Because they understand that beauty satisfies. And there's a few mistakes there. One is that they're pursuing prettiness instead of beauty. The other is that they're pursuing it primarily within themselves, and they would do much better to pursue pursue beauty external to themselves. Suffice to say, beauty is worth pursuing because it satisfies. Secondly, Beauty is worth pursuing because it instructs. It instructs. Thomas Aquinas said, Beauty makes us delight in the very act of knowing. It makes us delight in the act of knowing. And theologically, again, it stands to reason. If that which is beautiful is also good and true, to pursue beauty is also invariably to pursue truth. It is also invariably to pursue that which is good. When you seek to take in beauty, in some measure, you will be instructed in the way of truth. You'll be instructed in the way of of virtue. And I think we see this logic in Scripture. Uh, Think of Isaiah and the the famous temple scene in chapter 6 when he sees the Lord, or more specifically, he sees the glory of the Lord... He takes in the Lord's splendor, and it's upon seeing God's beauty, then he recognizes his own sin. I've seen the glory of the Lord. Result, woe is me. Now my heart understands. Now my heart has been instructed concerning the nature of my sin. That is why later on in the book, in chapter 33, Isaiah, playing off of the theology of chapter 6, says what the people need is to see the king in his beauty. When they see the king in his beauty, then they will understand. Then their hearts will be instructed because beauty instructs. It's the same logic on display in Psalm 8. The psalmist says, I've seen your glory in the heavens. I have seen your glory in the mouth of a babe. What is man that you care for him? You see the the flow of thought there. I have beheld your glory, both in the heavens and in an infant. And the result is that it has instructed me. Or at the very least, it's caused me to ask a question. And as I often say, good questions are the means to which we learn. I've seen your glory. Now what is man that you are mindful of him? Now incidentally, this is what will separate 
a good teacher from a bad teacher. Uh, I need to be careful. There's probably a number of teachers here this morning. This is what separates a good teacher from an average teacher. And I say that as a teacher, okay? So, um, you know, you, you have options. You have options as a teacher. Think about pedagogy and how it is we enable people to learn. One option is to say, guys, here's what you need to learn. I have to teach it to you. You've got to learn it, so let's get on with it. That's one option, right? And you're not going to get many excited students if that's your approach. Another option is to try and show your students something of the beauty that is inherent to your subject. And I guarantee if you're, if you're teaching that which is true, and I trust you are, then there is beauty in there because the two go hand in hand. Your task, and it's not an easy one, is to show them something of that beauty. And if they catch a vision of the beauty, they will want to learn. So I teach Greek grammar at the seminary. That's one of the classes I have the privilege of teaching. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll be honest, it's not the most exciting subject for a number of students. I love it. A lot of students come in and they're not excited by Greek grammar. Uh, You know, this is not the class where I get to put on display the, the glory and the drama of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, This is not the class where we're thinking about what happened on the cross and what happened in the resurrection. This is the class where I say, here's some more vocab. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to quiz you on Thursday, make sure you've memorized it. Um, Here's a paradigm, here's some more rules to learn. I mean, it can get dry very quickly. So we're up against it. And um, what many people don't realize is that Greek as a language is incredibly ordered. It's incredibly logical, far more logical than English. Uh, One author said, to to, to not know Greek is to be ignorant of the most flexible and subtle instruments of expression which the human mind has devised. So there's my encouragement to learn Greek this morning. Um, Now, so from time to time, I will put in front of my students a verb paradigm that looks incredibly irregular. So we've gone through the hard work of learning all these rules, and then I say, look at this verb paradigm, and it looks like it sits underneath none of those rules. It doesn't obey any of them. And again, I have two options there. I can say, tough luck, learn it for Thursday. (laughs) I'll quiz you. Or I can try to show them something of the beauty in a verb paradigm. Guys, can you see how... As we move from line one to line two, it doesn't look like it, but actually we're obeying this rule over here. And and then when you move from line two to three, do you remember those two rules we learned last week? Well, actually, they're working together now to produce this effect, and that's why it looks the way it does. And as you move down to the fourth line, actually, it's not disobeying the rules, it's completely obeying them for this reason, and so on and so forth. And I guarantee you, if a student catches just a glimpse of the beauty that is inherent to that verb paradigm, I guarantee they want to learn it. Now they have a desire to learn it. Beauty causes us to delight in the very act of knowing, said Thomas Aquinas. In fact, they'll submit themselves to an incredible amount of discipline and hard work in order to memorize it because 
they've seen the beauty. Beauty instructs. Thirdly, beauty is worth pursuing because it transforms. It transforms. It satisfies, it instructs. It also transforms. When we experience beauty, we are elevated. This is why when you read a really good story, you get the feeling of being whisked away and entering into that story. You lose all um, awareness of the time around you because you've been taken away by a good story. Now, why does it do that and, and what's the net result? There was a man in the first century, first century AD, called Longinus, who wrote a treatise titled On the Sublime or Concerning the Sublime. And the whole work, fairly short, is considering the question, particularly with regards to literature, what is it that elevates the human soul? What is it that lifts the human soul up? And it's a wonderful work, and it really does get into a consideration of beauty, though he doesn't often refer to it explicitly as beauty. And and one thing Longinus majors on and highlights is that idea of form and content. And in fact, he says when form matches content, then we experience the sublime. This is why Handel's Messiah is so powerful a piece of music. Think about the the content. It's about as high as you can get. It's about the Messiah. And then think about the form. It's just grandiose. It's lofty. All of the voices and the instruments working together, wonderfully so. The form matches the content and it elevates. We can't help but be swept up by that piece of music. And then Aristotle, who was writing around the same time, he was talking about the effect of that elevation. He said, when we take it in, we're not the same person that we were afterwards. You have to realize that if you make a trip to the Grand Canyon, you're not going to come back the same person that you were before. You have to realize if you're going to go and see the Great Barrier Reef, you are going to be changed. You won't be the same person when you return. And we're talking about nature here. Think about Scripture. And Paul gets to this when he says, Beholding the glory of the Lord... We are transformed into its likeness, 2 Corinthians 3. He's talking there about the glory of the Lord as revealed in Scripture. And by the way, this book is one where form matches content perfectly from beginning to end. I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag now and just showing you the direction we're headed. This book is one where form matches content perfectly from beginning to end. God knew a thing or two about beauty. There's a reason why some of the loftiest praises that we have in Scripture are found in the Psalter, which is written in poetic form. There's a reason why the Proverbs, which give every day instruction, are written in a more terse kind of syntax. The form matches the content, and when that happens, we're elevated. When we pursue beauty... We can't help but experience something that is higher than ourselves. And properly pursued, we can't help but experience something of God, of his handiwork and of him. This is why the quiet time 
works. It's the staple of the evangelical diet, the quiet time. Uh, read your Bible each morning. Why, 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 why do we commend that as a practice to Christians? Well, in a very everyday, non-dramatic way, when you open your Bible in the morning and you engage meaningfully with God's word, you are experiencing beauty. And that beauty elevates and it transforms. It lifts you up out of the mire of everyday life for all of 20 minutes. And when you come back down and you face your responsibilities, you're not the same person that you were before. Now, it's a gradual process, day by day, week by week, year after year. It's a very gradual process, but God is at work when you open his word and he's working through its inherent beauty. It transforms. Now, hopefully at this point, maybe you're persuaded that beauty is a worthwhile category for our consideration. It may even be that you're sat there thinking, this is worthy of my pursuit, of my energy. Sign me up. But there's a problem. Dostoevsky, to quote him a second time this morning, said that beauty is the battlefield between God and Satan where they contend with each other for the hearts of men. Beauty is the battlefield between God and Satan where they contend with each other for the hearts of men. And he was so right. There are many things that hinder our pursuit of beauty. Now, what are they? We've already stated perhaps the most obvious one this morning, and it's worth mentioning again. Our obsession with prettiness hinders our pursuit of beauty. Um, It's not just that it hinders our pursuit of beauty, but actually the more we consume that which is merely pretty, the less capable we become of seeing true beauty. It's kind of like the the Romans 1 effect with truth. It applies just as much to beauty. To suppress the truth makes you less able to hear the truth. To feast on prettiness means you are less able to subsequently perceive true beauty. And so it's this kind of downward ongoing spiral. I'll say to my students sometimes, if I was to ask you to read the book of Chronicles, just by way of example, from beginning to end, in one sitting, I guarantee most, if not all of you, at some point would express boredom. You would yawn, you would look at your watch, you would flick forward, see how many pages are left. That's not the fault of the text. The text is not boring. But somehow we've got to the point where we're no longer able to perceive true beauty. Or we're far less skilled at it than our predecessors were. The analogy I use is is, is candy or or fast food. It's being to my kids right now. Uh, You think a diet of candy or In-N-Out. Oh, wait. (laughs) We're serving In-N-Out tonight. (laughs) I mean, it still stands. We're not, we're not advocating a diet of in and out uh, You think that diet will satisfy and nourish and sustain, and it won't. And not only will it not satisfy, nourish, sustain, 
the more you eat it, the less capable you are of enjoying broccoli and carrots. <laughs> it's the same with beauty. Now, that's our initial observation. Secondly, and, and significantly, secularism hinders our pursuit of beauty. Now, the, the kind of catch-all category for the preacher is seeking to apply a text to a specific situation is to invoke the word secular. And, uh, you know, you, you just have to define it. You have to go further than simply say secularism. Uh, that, that's just a catch-all term. So let's try and be a bit more specific. How does secularism hinder our pursuit of beauty? Uh, Charles Taylor wrote what has become the standard work on secularism, A Secular Age. It was published 20 years ago now, and it is still the definitive work on secularism. Um, and yet, I mean, it's nearly a thousand pages, and it's not for the faint-hearted. If you are, if you are involved in the ministry of the word, if you're aspiring to the ministry, you should read the book at some point in your life. Now, you're not going to agree with everything that Charles Taylor says, but he will give you an education as to the nature of the culture into which you're seeking to minister God's word. So it's worth reading, and he makes many, many, many good observations in that book. And one thing he talks about is what he calls the malaise of imminence. The malaise of imminence. Now, what does he mean by that? Um, the secular age, the secular age is one that seeks to separate the divine from the everyday. It seeks to further segregate God from our everyday interactions and our everyday being. There is not much place in the secular age for the supernatural. And it's strange, it's funny how even saying that word to you this morning feels somewhat odd because we've lost it. We, we don't use that word anymore, and, and, and I bemoan the fact that we don't use the word supernatural because it's a good word. It doesn't mean anything weird. It simply refers to that which is above us, which is supernatural. I'll often talk about how there are many supernatural things going on at church, and I genuinely mean that. When we come together as believers and we fellowship and when we sing together, God is doing things amongst us that we can't see. He is doing things on a Sunday morning that we don't appreciate. They're supernatural. And yet the secular age has robbed us of that word. We just don't even use it anymore because the secular age is one that forces us to look only at that which we can see and explain it leaves very little room for that which is inexplicable, that which is above us. And so Taylor talks about the malaise of imminence, the detrimental effect of only ever concentrating on that which is right in front of you, the tangible things. Now, just think about that in relation to our definition of beauty. We said beauty in some way portends, projects, mirrors, points us towards the divinely ordained form and content of the universe, the handiwork of God, and ultimately towards God himself. So what secularism does is it cuts beauty off at its root. It doesn't allow for us to truly consider that which is beautiful. Now, Here's what's funny is that even the most hardened secularist will affirm the sunset as beautiful. 
Even the most hardened secularist will affirm the mountain range or, or the child's laughter as beautiful. And yet they won't allow beauty to have its full effect. They won't allow that which is beautiful to push the meditations of their hearts beyond that which they can see towards a consideration of the handiwork of God and God himself. And so what we might say is what secularism does is it moves that which is beautiful into the category of merely pretty. We might use the verbiage of beautiful, but actually we're saying it's pretty because we're not allowing beauty to have its full effect. We no longer allow the sunset to push our hearts up towards a consideration of God. A second hindrance to our pursuit of beauty is utilitarianism. It's overrated. Uh, I have to be careful here. We are very grateful for the Industrial Revolution. We praise God for the Industrial Revolution. It brought about many things for which we are very grateful. The comforts we enjoy today, the technology we enjoy today, the health care we enjoy today, the life expectancy that we enjoy today is directly related to the Industrial Revolution. At the same time, you have to realize there were implications that weren't so desirable. And one of those simply was that we have now become this utilitarian society which is obsessed with product, with function or purpose, to the degree that now we attribute worth to something only in so much as we can perceive that it has an output. It has a purpose or a function. It gives us something. If it plops a, a, a well-contained cellophane-wrapped product off at the end, then it's valuable. And if it doesn't, we are reluctant to attribute worth to it. Here's the problem. A sunset on a beach doesn't produce anything. It doesn't give me an output. There's no product that I walk home with having observed the sunset. The the infant's hand on the scan in the mother's womb doesn't produce anything. It doesn't give me a product. And so what utilitarianism does is it prompts us to attribute less and less value to beauty, to the perception of beauty for beauty's sake. I can drive out to the coast this evening with Laura and the kids just to watch the sunset. Or I could do X, Y, and Z on my to-do list. And nine times out of ten, I'll do X, Y, and Z. Because at the end of it, I'll have something to show for it. I'll have nothing to show for having driven out to watch the sunset. We're less inclined to pursue beauty for beauty's sake. We can put this another way. What utilitarianism has done is it's segregated form from content. It's, it's disrupted the universal language of beauty. It's obsessed with content, with output, and not so concerned about form. Uh, one of the most obvious examples is, is in architecture. If you were to travel around the, the UK Many years ago now, you would find that every town, at least every agricultural town, had at its center 
a corn exchange. I was texting with a friend this week saying, <laughs> a corn exchange is a thing in America. And uh, we kind of went back and forth, and there was some confusion. And I said, well, I'll just explain myself. I don't know if it's the same here, but back home in the agricultural towns, and I, I grew up in one, I always describe to people that my, where I grew up was kind of like the Midwest of England. Uh, just lots of flat fields, lots of farming. The center of the town was the corn exchange, where the farmers would come to do their trade. Guaranteed, the corn exchange was one of, if not the most ornate buildings in the town. Where I grew up, the corn exchange still stands there today, and it's this huge building with huge arches and pillars and engravings in stone. Now think about that. That was built for the purpose of the farmers coming to do their trade. So what does that communicate about what goes on inside there? It communicates to everyone, we value this work. This work is the lifeblood of our community. Or, to put it in terms of beauty, it commends everyone to see the inherent beauty that is found in a well-functioning society. Now fast forward to 2020 and think about some of the public buildings we use today, uh, the, the DMV. Um, the post office, even the public library. I mean, there's just no effort going into presenting those buildings according to their form. It is the absolute bare minimum required in order to get the job done because we're obsessed with content, with products. That does not commend that work to us or it hinders us from perceiving the inherent beauty that is there in a well-functioning society. We could go on, and, and I, I truly mean that. I think there could be a whole Sundays in July seminar considering what is it today that hinders our pursuit of beauty. Those three are perhaps, in my mind, the most prevalent things. So all of that to say, we really are up against it. How then... Do we pursue beauty? In the 1980s, Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. Uh, it became a bestseller. Perhaps many of you have read it. It was a book written against the noise of society and observing how, in many ways, uh, pop culture has stunted our ability to simply think. And there is a sense in which the pursuit of beauty is simply a reopening of the mind. To pursue beauty is, in one sense, simply to go after Philippians 4.8, when Paul says, whatever is good, noble, true, pure, lovely, think upon these things. Uh, it's funny how we take that verse. People often read it as a limiting verse. As if Paul's emphasis is to say, do not think about that which is not good, true, lovely, pure, honorable, and so on. Do not think about those things. And practically, of course, we would affirm that. What Paul is actually doing there is commending us. He's exhorting us to think about those things. Pursue those things with your mind because there is incredible value in it. The pursuit of the, the mind towards the things of beauty. In one sense, to pursue beauty is simply to go after with the mind that which has stood the test of time 
in which there is something of the divinely ordained form and content of the universe, which is also good and true, and allow it to have its full effect on you. One of the best pieces of parenting advice I think I was ever given was don't buy your kids stuff, buy them experiences. And make sure that you're by their side to hold their hand and experience the thing with them. And there's a sense in which we could apply that to ourselves. Stop playing with toys and pursue beauty. Pursue beauty in such a way that we allow beauty to have its instructive, satisfying, transforming effect on us. Now, it's not going to be easy. It takes labor to understand what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare. It takes energy to understand why it is that millions travel to see the Mona Lisa. It takes some energy and some effort to try and understand why the L.A. Phil sells out continuously when they play those great pieces of music. But it's worth it. Now, we dare not stop there. That cannot be the end of our pursuit of beauty. We dare not stop there. And this is where I want to bring it back full circle to the question with which we opened. Dostoevsky said, beauty will save the world. Was he right? And the answer is yes, provided that we get to define the terms. Or provided that we get to say wherein the redeeming value of beauty is found. Beauty will save the world, provided you realize what kind of beauty. Because, sadly, no amount of Shakespeare is going to save anyone. It's wonderful, but it's not going to save. No amount of Dvorak or Beethoven is going to save you, as pleasing and as satisfying as it is. What you have to realize is that the purest, the fullest, the highest expression of beauty that you will ever see this side of glory is in your hands this morning. What you have to realize is that the purest, highest, fullest expression of beauty that you will see this side of glory is right here. That we have the most beautiful story ever told. It is beautiful in its sum and in its parts. It is beautiful in both form and content. It is beautiful from beginning to end. It is a story of beauty. It begins with God making that which was beautiful. It was very beautiful. It ends with saints being led unto beauty. It's a story of beauty forsaken. And yet it is a story of beauty regained. Now, Pay attention to how that beauty is regained. Pay careful attention to the redeeming beauty that we find in the person of Christ. Isaiah 53 tells us he came with no form or majesty that we should esteem him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. This is one of the, the ironic reversals of the gospel narrative. And it unlocks everything. Eve desired that which was pleasing to the eyes and she lost everything. 
Christ came and none of us wanted anything to do with him because he had no beauty that we should desire him and yet through him we gain everything. And that is why we can sing week after week the beauty of the cross. Have you ever thought about those words, why it is that we can sing the beauty of a man hanging on a wooden beam? Because it's not pretty. The cross is not pretty, but it is so beautiful. So how can we sing about the beauty of the cross and affirm its beauty because of the projecting value? When you look at the cross, you see that which is good and that which is true, and it projects us. It projects our thoughts towards the God who authored the death of his son. In the cross, we see the very face of God, a saving, loving, redeeming, just God. And the cross projects us forward so that we understand the end point. That if you would trust in this one who came with no beauty that we should desire him, if you would pick up your cross and follow after him day after day, submitting your life to the commands of scripture, you will live a beautiful life. It won't necessarily be pretty. There are no guarantees in Scripture that you will live a pretty life. But if you are in submission to Christ and his commands, if you are his disciple, you will live a beautiful life. And the end point is when he comes back to claim his own and we step into everlasting beauty, beauty as you have never seen before. And my prayer is that we would be those who consider rightly that which is beautiful, especially as it is found in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And we would be those who are committed to following after him and living beautiful lives of obedience. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us so much to enjoy in life. We're so thankful for the beauty that you have written into your created order. Father, this morning we praise you for the beauty inherent to our relationships, the beauty that we see in one another because we're image bearers. Father, we marvel this morning that there is beauty in a crying infant, in a sunset, in a mountain range. And yet we know the highest expression of beauty is found in the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us a story of beauty. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have feasted on that which is pretty and neglected to take in your beauty. And I do pray that you would direct our hearts towards the glory of your handiwork, especially as it is found in your word. May we be those who pursue beauty in the face of Christ 
And may that beauty have its full effect on us, transforming us into his image, to the praise of your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.